Welcome to episode 35 of the MMA Rundown Podcast. This is an off week for the UFC, but there's still been some decent news coming out. Uh, we, we just had a big event in Japan for Bellator, so I'll recap that event first. A couple big wrestling tournaments coming up. One of them is already underway in the Midlands. The other one has yet to begin yet with the Southern Scuffle. So I'll talk about what's happened so far and then preview the rest of the tournament for the Midlands and then just preview the Southern Scuffle. Although brackets aren't out yet for it, so that'll be more of a limited preview. Talk about Gordon Ryan retiring from Jiu-Jitsu, or at least that was a, a post he just put up while he was away on vacation this week. And there's a little video that came out of Colby Covington at a basketball game, at a Miami Heat game with... I, from what the tweet says, rapper Lil Pump. I, I don't know who Lil Pump is or what he looks like, but I'll just take I'll take their word for it. Uh, so a little bit of an update on him and how he's doing, uh, particularly with the broken jaw. And then there have been a handful of fights that have been announced. Some of them are still pending, like the Leon Edwards versus Tyron Woodley fight. I don't think that one's official yet, so I'm not going to talk about that one as much. Um, but some of them were made official, so I'll, I'll talk about the fights that were made official. Uh, so there'll be three of those fights, and then talk about a couple of retirements that just happened, uh, excluding the Fedor one. The Fedor one I'll, I'll address with the Bellator recap, which I guess would begin right now. And we'll, we'll start from... I, I, I guess we'll go main event down, kind of like what I do with the UFC. Uh, so main event was Fedor versus Rampage Jackson. Fight just... Man, this, this just looked really bad for Rampage. He was completely out of shape in this fight. Looks like he had to cut down to make heavyweight, which is crazy for a guy who used to fight at 205. Um, but just didn't look very good out there. Oftentimes when Fedor were getting close, he would shell up and, and look to counter with that lead left hook. But he, even when he'd go for it, it was pretty sloppy. It looked a lot slower than what we're used to seeing out of him. Uh, so it, it was one of those fights where it was just a matter of time that Fedor would be able to punch around Rampage's guard and, and cause some problems for him and eventually put him away. And it, it only took uh, a little under three minutes to do so. So Fedor lands a huge overhand. Um, that looked like it might have been partially blocked, but it was still behind the ear of Rampage. Rampage just kind of face plants into the mat, and ref steps in, ends the fight. Uh, at, at the time, Rampage was saying that he was fine and he could keep going, but that fight wasn't going anywhere good for him, and when you have a guy who face plants into the mat, you kind of have to stop it there. So, fair stoppage there. I didn't see any problem with it. There was some talk online of it being a work. I, I didn't see that. It just looked like Rampage wasn't well prepared, and was looking to play more of a defensive game and wait for Fedor to come in, and while Fedor put himself in the pocket, try to counter him there, but Fedor was too smart for that, and it just was a really bad fight for Rampage, who I can't imagine really put a whole lot of time into the training for this camp. Fight before that, and a fight that I think is going to go under the radar in a way that a lot of people... I guess it's going to depend for how Khabib does, depending on how how well this or how big this fight ends up being in the mind of fans. But one of the interesting things here is that Sydney Outlaw is a guy who was brought in... I mean, he's already part of ATT, but he was a guy who Dustin Poirier really leaned on heavily for the Khabib camp as the guy who's supposed to be like the Khabib... Um, the Khabib clone, so to speak, the guy who can be like the really powerful wrestler, take you down and just manhandle you from top. And, and that's sort of the game that Sydney Outlaw has. He, he's been on a bit of a streak recently. He's been looking pretty good. Obviously, he's back in Bellator, had that opportunity on short notice to fight against Michael Chandler. For Michael Chandler... One of the things that we were talking about with Khabib is that if you're trying to find the style that's going to be difficult for Khabib to be, it's going to be the guy who Khabib's going to have trouble taking down if he can even get down, a guy who's going to have trouble keeping down if he can get him down, and a guy who's going to be able to outstrike him. And surprisingly, with lightweight being as deep as it is, there aren't a whole lot of highly um, highly credentialed wrestlers in the division. Like even in the UFC, you look at Justin Gaethje as one of them who was a one-time 
All-American and a guy who I believe that season, him being an All-American was more so him having a great tournament than it was him being like one of the top eight guys over the course of the entire season. And that was just a one-time thing. Uh, so Chandler is definitely has better wrestling credentials than Justin Gaethje. Now you could argue Gaethje's a better striker, but if you're looking for lightweights out there who are going to be difficult for a guy like Khabib to take down and who can give him problems on the feet, Michael Chandler is definitely one of those guys out there you would think of. And so for him to have this matchup against Sidney Outlaw, who's basically like discount Khabib, and for him to just destroy him the way that he did, if for whatever reason Chandler does become a free agent or if Khabib just gets through Tony Ferguson and maybe even gets through Justin Gaethje, if that's the guy who eventually comes up, Chandler could be that one guy, that, that one name out there. People are like, yeah, you, you know, Khabib's gone through these guys, but I wonder I wonder if Chandler's a guy who, who he can get through. And for him to to put on a performance like this against, a, I guess, like a great value Khabib, however you want to put it. Granted, Khabib is much better than Sidney Outlaw. He's a better striker than Sidney Outlaw. Um, better wrestling up against the fence and definitely a much better top game. But even still, to get a win like this, there's a chance that somewhere down the line, the talk of Chandler versus Khabib starts to sprout up a little bit again. And if it does, this is a fight that I think people are going to be referencing as, as a reason why they'd, they'd really want to see that fight happen. Um, but regardless, Chandler was able to land a big overhand right behind the, uh, sort of like behind the ear on, on uh, Sydney Outlaw, dropped him, landed another huge shot uh, while he was down. It looked like as the ref was jumping in to stop the fight, Outlaw was tapping, but either way, the fight ends there. But it, it's officially a KO, not a submission to just strikes. Fight before that, we had Michael Venom Page versus Shinsho. Uh, Anzai, apparently Anzai had fought in the UFC at some point. I don't remember ever seeing him. Um, but he wasn't able to get Michael Page down, so this became a striking match. And as is the case in, in most fights, if it's a striking match with Michael Page, Michael Page is going to be in a really good spot. Uh, Anzai had a lot of difficulty getting his reads on Page. One of the really impressive things that I would see is that when Anzai would try to run Page down, Page would get a lot of power into his flying knees as he was running backwards. Like, it was kind of... Uh, it was a little surprising, but also really impressive how he was able to put so much power into a flying knee as he was backpedaling. Um, but it was definitely causing issues for Anzai. So if Anzai was being tenanted, he would, he'd get pick apart, picked apart. If he chased after Page, he'd, he'd get picked apart on the way in. Uh, so it's just a matter of time for him. And early early in the second round, he gets dropped and kind of face planted. doesn't look like he knows where he is. And the ref steps in and just stops the fight. And it, it was definitely a good stoppage there as well. Uh, so good win for Michael Page. Not as though he, he beat a guy who is likely to put him in a spot to earn a title fight, but if that's the kind of fight they give you, you got to win. You got to win impressively, and that's what he did. So can't blame him for that. Fight prior to that is with Lorenz Larkin versus Kaden Nakamura. It'll be interesting to see if Larkin ends up getting a fight with Michael Page because I think that'd be an interesting matchup in terms of a title eliminator at welterweight. Uh, but Larkin again had the striking advantage on Nakamura. Nakamura definitely wanted to get this fight to the mat and try to find a way to get onto Larkin's back, but wasn't ever close to doing that. So Larkin just picks him apart on the feet for, for the majority of the fight. Uh, looked like he had an opening for the lead left hook because Nakamura's right hand uh, in, in southpaw was down the entire time. Um, but I think Larkin was trying to trying to look for that shot on the way, sort of like on the way out um, as Nakamura was exiting rather than leading within, giving Nakamura a chance um, to slide underneath it and try to take him down. Uh, so I feel like there were some openings there for Larkin to, to land some shots that could potentially get him a knockout. Uh, definitely had some big shots regardless. Put a lot of damage on Nakamura, but wasn't able to get the finish, so he ends up getting a, a unanimous decision win here. Then we had a women's fight between Kana Watanabe and Alara Joanne, and that just wasn't a very good fight. Uh, Joanne 
was landing some decent shots on the feet early. Um, fairly sloppy in her striking, but so was Wadnabi, so Joanne was still able to, able to land her shots. Uh, but when this fight went to the mat, it just really wasn't impressive from either side. Um, Joanne was looking for a couple submissions here and there, but wasn't ever really all that close. Really committed early. I think it was in the first round on a on a no-arm triangle, which, I mean, I guess if you've got an absurd squeeze with your legs, you can finish that, but that's not really a, a mechanically strong position. And as a result, she didn't finish and uh, actually got her guard passed with it. Although it's kind of odd how John McCarthy was talking about how Watanabe hadn't done anything from top while she had already passed into side control. He was talking about how she'd accomplished nothing while she was already past the guard. So that was a little bit odd. But either way, Joanne really wasn't very effective in getting close on any submission attempts. Uh, Watanabe had a lot of opportunities to pass and really get into some dominant positions and missed a lot of them and up until pretty much the end of the fight when she finally was able to, to pass from the half guard straight to the back uh, and then landed some unanswered shots and... Given that Joanne wasn't doing much to improve possession, they end up stopping the fight right towards the end. But it really wasn't all that impressive a fight from either of them. Uh, Joanne, obviously, yes, she landed a, a couple nice shots, but her striking was pretty sloppy. Uh, her jiu-jitsu definitely left a lot more to be desired. For Watanabe, the striking just didn't seem to be there. Uh, the judo was there at times, but she, she's not as though she was constantly dominant every time the fight went to a clinch. She actually got put in her back a couple times, or at least one time uh, that I can remember. Uh, and, and then her top game... Like, she managed to stay on top, but it's not as though her guard passing looked very good. It's not as though her ground and pound looked very good or very powerful. Uh, and didn't look very good from a submission standpoint. So she's got a lot of work to do if she wants to really work her way up the ladder. But whatever the case may be, this is a fight that they put on. So that's why I'm talking about it. And then the fight before that, we had Goethe Yamauchi versus Darren Crookshank. And this was sort of like your your standard striker versus grappler match. Yamauchi looked pretty pretty good early, at least on the feet. He was throwing some some interesting uh, karate style kicks. Um, but eventually he, um, as, as Crookshank went for a spinning attack, I think it was a spinning back fist. Um, Yamauchi uh, had him. I'm, I'm, if it was wrestling, you could I guess you could say he took his back, but he didn't actually like, have the hooks in. But he he was behind him, standing up against the fence. I uh, was able to get one hook in. I uh, was really working to get that second hook in while Crookshank was using the fence to to, to take away that space from him. Uh, eventually, Yamauchi kicks off the fence to create that space, gets the second hook in, uh, gets his back, and then is able to finish a rear naked choke. So really impressive finish for him. Uh, Crookshank's been he, he's been decent since he's left the UFC, but even still, to get a win like this against a guy like Derek Crookshank, where you pretty much take no damage, that's you, you got to be happy about that. It's a really good win for Yamauchi. It'll be interesting to see who they put him up against next, because he's got a really good record at 25 and 4. I believe he actually had a fight against Michael Chandler at some point where he ended up losing that. But so it, it's not as though he hasn't been put up against some of the top guys in the division. But after getting one like this, you'd figure uh, he, he's earned another shot at some of the top guys in the division and a chance to work his way up the lightweight ladder. So that covers it for Bellator. Uh, so now I'll be going over to college wrestling, and we'll start with the Midlands. So Midlands are. You could argue that outside of like the conference tournaments, that it, the Midlands could be the biggest and most prestigious midseason tournament in wrestling, uh, especially with Penn State not being in the Southern Scuffle this year. Uh, this is definitely going to have uh, one of the strongest draws out there. So we'll start at 125. Right now the quarterfinals are set, and those will be contested tonight, I believe at 8 o'clock. So as you would expect, Spencer Lee out of Iowa. Uh, two quick pins, hasn't even had two minutes of mad time between his two matches, but he's into the quarterfinals. He'll face Hellickson of Harvard. Uh, the other quarterfinals that are set at that weight class are going to be D'Agostino from uh, from Northwestern, who's had a pretty solid season so far, and it looks like he's going to stay at 125, and Sebastian Rivera's going to be bumped up at 133. 
but he'll face Drew, Hildebr Drew Hildebrandt. He's a pretty tough matchup. Uh, then we got Brock Hudkins from Indiana going against uh, Koliako versus uh, Penn. And then um, Cannon, who got a win over Schwarm from Northwestern. He's going to be facing Pat Glory in the other quarterfinal. At 133, Austin DeSanto has looked pretty good so far. Uh, so Tech Fallen's first match. Major in his second. He'll face Ferrante from Penn in the quarterfinals. Uh, Noah Gonzer, who faced Austin DeSanto in the finals last year, he's going to be on the other um, quarterfinal there. So if he gets a win, he'll have to face DeSanto in the semis this time around. Uh, but he'll have to beat Travis Petrowski of Illinois. Uh, Sebastian Rivera versus Lee Hayes will be a quarterfinal. So that'll be the three in Rivera versus the six in Hayes. Hayes got this far um, starting strong with a win over Gavin Teasdale. Uh, then beat Haywood by a pin. Uh, so for those who are wondering how Gavin Teasdale would do, this was a real big opportunity for him. Uh, I believe he's still alive in the back draw so far, so it's not as though his tournament's over, but the match with Hayes wasn't the most impressive thing out of him. Uh, just just looked like he was having a lot of trouble like setting up his shots. Like For the most part, when he would get in on someone's legs, he would just kind of shoot from space, and not as though he would use a, a tie to set it up or really have to like work through head hands. He would just kind of like shoot straight in, and that definitely limited his opportunities. His defense looked pretty good so far, but... If you're having trouble getting clean shots on a guy like Louis Hayes, uh, the hope of you being an All-American this year, or being like All-American level is definitely not there. So for some of the talk of there being a possibility of Teasdale being at 133 this year and then DeSanto moving up to 141, I think at this point, with DeSanto being number one at 133 right now anyway, I think it's it's pretty clear that you're keeping DeSanto there. Um, but if DeSanto was going to get moved up, the, the hope would be that he could do better than Murin. And that whoever replaces him could could do something close to what he can do, and I don't think there's anything any reason to believe that Gavin Teasdale is going to be anywhere near as productive as Austin DeSanto this year. So it seems as though DeSanto set at 33. If that wasn't if that wasn't clear enough already, that, that definitely seems to be the case now. And then the other quarterfinal is going to be Colin Valdivez, uh, who got a win over Paul Glenn in sort of a weird match in the round of 16, where Glenn decided not to go down. So there were no takedowns in the first period, so 0-0. Um, Valdivez got the escape in the second, so 1-0 Valdivez, and you would have figured that Glenn would start on bottom and then be able to tie it up at 1 once he once he escapes, but he decided to start from neutral. Uh, Valdivez got warm for stalling, but unfortunately for Glenn, he wasn't able to get close enough on a takedown and ended up losing this match 1-0. So Valdivez moves on to face Seth Gross in the other quarterfinal, but the winner, I, I think a lot of people would expect that Rivera is going to beat Louis Hayes and Gross is going to beat Valdivez, so you'll have your Rivera versus gross match in the semifinals and if that's what we get that'd be pretty exciting up at 141 the number one seed here is max Mirren of iowa really good first match where he got a pin in a little over four minutes uh and then gets a decision when to move on to the quarterfinals so he'll face dylan duncan of illinois uh then we have laney versus blockus in the other quarterfinals so that'll be they'll face the winner of the duncan versus max Mirren match we've got josh heil versus sal profasi and then we also have uh, Moran versus Sherman. Moran from Wisconsin and then Sherman from UNC. Moving up to 149, uh, Iowa had a lot of guys at this weight who were, who were doing pretty good. Um, so in the quarterfinals, what we're going to be getting is we're going to be getting Austin O'Connor and Jaron Glosser, so Glosser of Iowa, uh, who upset the, the number eight seed from American uh, Clark in this bracket. Vince Turk's also going to be moving forward, so he'll be facing off against Murphy from UVA. So there's a possibility I wouldn't count on it. I, I don't think Glosser is going to beat O'Connor, but if Glosser does get the win there, then you could have a Glosser versus Turk match in the semifinals. But for Turk, he ended up beating Kanan Store of Michigan to get there. Kind of a sloppy uh, overtime period. So he was tied 1-1 one -one with Kanan Store, 
uh, Paul Glenn, I believe, I, I believe it was Paul Glenn, or it might have been someone else, uh, but someone else from Iowa uh, ended up losing a match where they were just kind of shooting recklessly in overtime and ended up getting uh, taken down as a result. Turk was a little bit reckless, but he was able to, to recover every time that Storr was getting close to finishing a reshot on him. Uh, but eventually Turk gets a late finish on a takedown with like six seconds left in in the overtime period and gets the win over Cannon Storr. It's a really big win for him, although with that being said, uh, he, he's behind Pat Lugo right now in the lineup, so it, it would take a lot for him to, to steal a spot or really give reason for people to believe that he was going to take this spot, but getting a win over Cannon Storr is still a big win for him regardless. Other quarterfinals, we have Thompson from UNI. Going up against Williams from SIU Edward, Edwardsville after Williams got the win over Griffin Perriott. And then Leon from, it's a CUMB, I'm not sure exactly where he's from, uh, but he'll, he'll be facing Pat Lugo from Iowa. So Iowa's got three guys in the quarterfinals, so they got Lugo, Glosser, and Turk all in the quarterfinals here. Uh, so really good performances at that weight. At 157, the number one seed is Quincy Monday. He surprisingly got upset by Hartman of Army. Um, so he will not be moving on to the quarterfinals. So Hartman will be facing Parks from Central Michigan. Um, then we have Ruffin going up against Artelona. So Artelona got a win over Barone by fall. Uh, so those guys will be also in the quarterfinals. On the bottom half of the draw, uh, all of the quarterfinalists are, are there as expected based on their seeds. So you have number three, Coleman from Purdue versus Headley from UNC, the number six. And then Carson, number seven from Ohio versus Caleb Young, number two from Iowa. Young had a bit of a tough round of 16, but was able to get through and get the one over Petit from Buffalo. Moving on to 165, Alex Marinelli is just running through everyone he's facing right now. Uh, so, got a pin in the round of 64, got another pin in the round of 32, got another pin in the round of 16, uh, which moves him on to the quarterfinals now against the number 9, uh, Conigliaro from Harvard. Then Hartman from Bucknell is going to be going on, going up against Keating from Virginia in the other quarterfinal. And then the bottom half quarterfinals, we have David McFadden uh, going up against Brunagle from Illinois, and then Evan Wick going up against Perez. So the expectation there would be that you get Wick versus McFadden in the semifinals, and the winner has to face off against Alex Marinelli, assuming that he gets through to the finals. Marinelli has lost to McFadden. He's lost to Wick as well, although with Wick, he's beaten him multiple times since then, pretty much every time he's beaten him since then. Had trouble um, on bottom against Wick, but... He's just dominated from neutral, so being on bottom hasn't been an issue for him. So you would figure that if Wick is able to get through and beat McFadden, then Marinelli's probably going to win Midlands if McFadden gets through. You would still probably figure Marinelli's favored, but McFadden is a guy who's beaten him before. At 174, surprisingly, Michael Kemmer, and for what it sounds like, I think it's just an illness. It's not an injury, uh, which is good news for Iowa fans, but Michael Kemmer was expected to be the number one seed in this in this bracket. But he ends up not being in the bracket, again, mostly being due to illness. So Iowa actually has nobody at 174. Although, if you look at a weight like 149 where they have three guys in the quarterfinals, I'm sure they'll they'll be fine in terms of picking up some team points there. Uh, but Dylan Lighty from Purdue takes the number one seed as a, as a result. He's through to the quarterfinals going up against Lout from UNC. Uh, then we also have Kobiaku from, Indi- from Indiana going up against Harvey from Army. In the other quarterfinal in the top half of the draw. On the bottom half, Joey Gunther from Illinois, uh, formerly with Iowa. Um, he's going to be going up against Krattinger from Wisconsin. And then Marcelli from Virginia will be facing Bryce Steyart from UNI. At 184, uh, another very interesting wait for Iowa where they had three guys who all, all had chances to make deep runs here. 
unfortunately for them, the round of 16 didn't go very well for, for any of them. Uh, granted, they, they did pick up a win at a, a win during that round, but it's not as though it was a really clean one. Um, but just looking at the quarterfinals, uh, number one seed in this bracket is Taylor Luan. He'll be facing Johnny Sebastian, who got there after winning a late uh, winning a match against Cash Wilkie by a score of 32 with a late takedown. Uh, there was about 10 seconds left, I believe, when Sebastian was able to finish that takedown. So for Wilkie, had a match with Sebastian in the duel earlier this year where it was 5-5, five to five, and then Sebastian scores a late takedown in overtime to make it 7-5 to five and get the win. Uh, here, another close match with Sebastian, and Sebastian gets a win again. So p- pretty tough for them in that Johnny Sebastian last year when he was with Northwestern lost to Keegan Shaw, who was like a second or third stringer at 174, and now he moves up to 184 and is 2-0 this year already against Cash Wilkie, a guy who has the ability to to make it to the podium at NCAAs, has, hasn't quite done it yet. Um, but he, he definitely hasn't had a very good season so far. So for him, the expectation was that he probably was going to have the spot at 184 for for the Hawkeyes. Lost that spot to Nelson Brands, and Nelson Brands had a loss to Stefanik from Princeton. So there was a possibility that if Wilkie had a really strong performance here at 184, that he could take the spot back. And, and really that's what was exciting about this particular bracket, especially for the Iowa lineup is that you had Cash Wilkie with a chance to, to really put a stamp on him being ahead of Nelson Brands and winning this bracket. Um, and you also had Abe Assad, who's a true freshman, where if he could just run through this bracket here, then maybe there'd be some consideration where with Iowa looking to win the title this year, maybe they pull his red shirt if he wins this bracket. And so he had a real a real good opportunity as well to, to earn a spot on the lineup, um, depending on how dominant he was. Um, but at least for Wilkie, tough loss to Johnny Sebastian. Other quarterfinal is Morgan from Campbell versus Stewart from Army. On the bottom half of the draw, we have... Uh, I think this is incorrect in the bracket. Uh, it says Abisad got the win over Stefanik. I believe that Abisad lost to Stefanik by a score of 5-3 because I was watching that match. I'm pretty sure Stefanik got the late takedown. Um, so I think this is actually incorrect from Flow, from Flow Wrestling. So I'll, I'll go off of my memory here and actually go against what the bracket says. I'll have to go back and double-check and see if they're wrong here. Uh, but they're saying that Abisai got the win over Stefanik. Abisai um, was up and was looking good heading into the third, but got reversed, um, or, or got put on his back, um, gave up two points, and ends up going back to standing. It's tied 3-3, uh, rather than it being 3-2. Or actually, I think... I, I'm, I'm try, I, regardless, he would have had the lead and just had to hold Stefanik off had he not had his back exposed. Uh, but I'm pretty sure Stefanik got a late takedown to, to win this match. Uh, so then it would be Harvey versus Stefanik, and not Harvey versus Assad. And then you would have Brunagel versus Nelson Brands. Brands had a pretty rough start against Hopkins from Campbell. Was able to come back and really put it on him late. So the final score ends up being 15-9, but this was a very close match. It was a match where he had to come back late. Um, but once he had come back, then he just started like taking him down, cutting him, taking him down, cutting him. And wasn't able to, to steal a late major decision. But early on, the, early on in this match, it wasn't looking very good for him. So... If I'm correct, based off of what I saw, the only Hawkeye left in this bracket in the main draw is Cash Wilkie. Or not Cash Wilkie, is um, Nelson Brands. Uh, so that would mean that Wilkie and Avis Hodder are both in the back draw. And they still have a chance to to work their way up and, and finish in a good spot. But in terms of actually winning the thing, it looks like right now Nelson Brands is the only guy who has a shot at it. At 197, Jacob Warner is the number one seed from Iowa. So far, it's looking pretty good. Uh, got a major decision in the round of 32, got another major decision in the round of 16, so he's moving on to the quarterfinals up against Braun of NIU. Uh, then Aiello is going to be facing off against Hopkins from Army, who knocked off Thomas Lane 
who had beaten Jacob Warner last year in NCAAs. So really good for Warner there and in that if he's able to get a win, he's not going to run into Thomas Lane again, at least not in this bracket, or at least not in the main draw. Uh, on the bottom half, Christian Brunner from Purdue moves on to the quarterfinals. He'll be facing off against Davison from uh, Northwestern. And then Phipps of Bucknell will be facing off against Brucky, who had a rough go against Zach Glacier in the round of 32. He was able to come back and get the win. Um, but Brucky will be going up against Phipps. So it seems like there's a decent chance that we'll be getting Brucky versus Warner Part 2. Uh, first match, Brucky looked like he was in a good, a good spot to win that match in the duel, but Warner gets a late takedown and steals it. So he could get a rematch there, but both of them need to win two more matches before that can happen. Then in heavyweight... Number one seed, again, of Iowa is Anthony Cassiope. Uh, so he gets two quick pins to move on to the quarterfinals. He'll be facing off against Elam of Missouri, which is a pretty interesting match. Um, and then we have Isley of UNI going up against Hino of Campbell. Hino just got a win over Aaron Costello of Iowa. And then we have Stencil over, or Stencil is going to be going up against uh, Slava Kuski, who earned his spot in the quarterfinals after beating Josh Hokett a former All-American at 197 pounds last year. And I believe there is a part of the reason for him moving up is that he had a really good football season with Fresno State. And when you're playing football, you're not as worried about your weight as you are when you're wrestling, obviously, because you're not being weighed in for football over and over. So for him, I guess he might have put on a little bit of extra weight. And as a result, they felt the need to move him up to heavyweight. But he was the number six seed in this bracket, ends up losing the 11th seed, so he's out of the main draw now. And then on the bottom half of the draw... Uh, Heald of Army is going to go up against Trent Hilger of Wisconsin. So that's where the brackets are at so far. By the end of the night, we'll be on to the semifinals. And then tomorrow, on Monday, they'll do the semifinals, I believe, at 1 o'clock, and then the finals uh, during the night. So other big college tournament to talk about is the Southern Scuffle. Unfortunately, this year, they're not going to have Penn State, which is going to take out a lot of interesting matchups. Also, Oklahoma State is redshirting a handful of guys who you would have liked to have seen in this tournament, particularly Dayton Fix. Um, so we're still going to get a lot of good matches here, most likely, but we're not going to get a lot of the same ones that we were hoping for. So the main teams that are in this are going to be NC State, Oklahoma State, Iowa State, Pitt, and Stanford. Uh, so we're still going to get some pretty decent matches here. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see for Iowa State if Austin Gomez is ready to go for this one or not, because uh, it would be interesting to see if he's at 133. Last year, him and... Roman Bravo Young had a really, really fun match. I believe he, uh, I think he got the win there, and then ended up having to face Dayton Fix. Obviously, Fix won't be there this time around because he is taking an Olympic redshirt, but with that being said, I think there are definitely some, still some interesting matchups to have at the lighter weights. At 125, you're going to have Nick Piccinini from Oklahoma State. So he, he's a guy who's a top-four guy in the nation right now. I, I don't know that there's going to be anyone who's going to give him too much trouble. Mackle... At times, is ranked in the top eight for Iowa State. I don't know that Mackle's going to put up a great match against Nick Pitchinini, but that's a matchup that we, you could potentially get. So even though Penn State's out of the scuffle this year, this year there's still going to be some interesting matchups to have, but this is a tournament that will be happening on January 1st and 2nd. So that'll be Tuesday and Wednesday. So Monday, we're going to have the end of the Midlands, and then right after that, um, Tuesday and Wednesday, they go straight into the Southern Scuffle. So if you're a wrestling fan, right now is a great time for you to, to enjoy some high-level wrestling. Uh, unfortunately, the brackets aren't out for the scuffle, so if they were, I could at least look at them and start looking at some possible matchups, but with them not being up right now, this is about as much as I can do, which kind of sucks, but that's sort of where we are, but next week's podcast, I'll at least be able to recap the tournament and also be able to recap Midlands, uh, or at least the finals of the Midlands. So from that, um, from wrestling, we go into jiu-jitsu uh, really quickly. 
So there was a story that had come out uh, based off of an Instagram post from Gordon Ryan where he said that he was deciding to retire right now with his reasoning being that he, he finally had a chance to take a vacation right now and he feels like he's just been working himself way too hard with jiu-jitsu. He spent like the last five years just killing himself in what he called the Blue Basement, which is effectively just the Henzo Gracie Academy where he trains at. Uh, so the way my thought on this is that I don't see this being a long-term thing, especially with him being 24. Um, but it is kind of concerning that if, if his goal was to get into MMA and become an MMA champion, being worn out after five years of jiu-jitsu or five hard years of jiu-jitsu, uh, when you've probably got at least, um, we'll, we'll, we'll see, even if he retired at 35, which a lot of people talk about, but I don't know that a whole lot of fighters do, you'd have like 11 hard years of MMA left ahead of him. So this could be concerning if, if the hope for him is that he eventually moves into MMA and starts fighting. Um, but either way, in terms of just looking at jiu-jitsu, this year, at least in the major tournaments that he competed in, it was pretty much just ADCC. So if you're looking at jiu-jitsu, in terms of what, what's considered a major tournament, for the most part, it's pretty much just the IBJJF Pans, uh, the IBJJF Nogi Pans, the IBJJF uh, Gi Worlds, and the IBJJF Nogi Worlds, and then ADCC, which comes around every two years. So 2020 is not going to be an ADCC year, which means that the big tournaments that'll be there are just the IBJJF tournaments. Now in 2018, Gordon Ryan did in the Nogi Worlds. He's never done the Gi tournaments or at Black Belt. So for him, you already knew he wasn't going to be doing Pans or Pans or Worlds in, in the Gi. So the thought would be maybe he does Nogi Pans or maybe he does Nogi Worlds. But this year, he did not do Nogi Pans and he did not do Nogi Worlds this year. So by him saying he's not doing any major tournaments next year and he's just going to do the two matches that he's already agreed to, it, it's not as though it's that big of news that he's announcing he's not doing Nogi Pans or Nogi Worlds because um, he, he didn't do that this year already. So to me, he, he's going to have a lot of time before another big tournament comes around. It's going to be in late 2021 when ADCC comes back. He's not going to have to qualify for it. He's just going to be invited because he's the current champion. So when that comes around and when the money that will likely be offered is offered, is he going to stay retired and say, you know what, no, I'm not I'm not coming back. I'm not doing it. To me, I find that hard to believe. Uh, there's still a long, long way to go. I think probably like 21 months at this point. So while it, it could mean that he's not going to be as active in 2020 as we're used to seeing him in most other years, I don't think this is as big of news as it seemed like, at least in the short term. The question is going to be, is he really going to stick to it? Because if he really does stick to it and he means what he says and he actually just does want to take a break and not really work work all that hard right now or, or just find something where he, it's less stressful for him, then I guess it could be a really big story. But if you're looking at it just in the short term in terms of him not competing right now, I don't think it's as shocking as it would appear on its face. Um, but from that, I'll move on to some MMA topics again. So first one to bring back is Colby Covington. Uh, I'll, I'll play this little clip here. It's like six seconds that was put up online. Hey, man, what's up, 305? Yeah, 305 shit, yeah. Oh, man, what's up, 305? Yeah, 305 shit, yeah. Yeah, so that's a little clip from Lil Pump, who is, uh, I believe, a rapper. But he was courtside at a Miami Heat game and sitting there courtside with Colby Covington wearing a Space Force shirt. Um, but that was just a little clip there where... He turns the camera over to Covington. Covington's like 305, which is the Miami zip code. What's up? Uh, so th- there was some talk about how after the fight he, he suffered a broken jaw and that he was likely going to have his jaw wired shut and it would take him out for a while. At least in the video we saw here, his, his jaw wasn't wired shut. There wasn't any, like, any apparatus on it. It's not clear what what severity that, that broken jaw was, whether it was a hairline fracture, whether there was like actual like broken fragments of the jaw that were sort of like separated out. It looks as though it's probably more of like a hairline fracture where the bone was still intact, but there was still like a crack through it. And I guess with that being the case, I guess they felt he didn't, they didn't, they did not need to wire his jaw shut. 
I do remember after the fight that there was an announcement from uh, from the hospital that he did, in fact, suffer a break to the jaw. So it's not as though his jaw was not broken, um, but it, it looks as though it's not as severe as as we thought it might be. So that's good for Colby. Uh, it, it's good to see him out in public and seemingly having some fun doing some stuff. I know there were some, some jokes being put around where they were comparing him to, like, Ronda Rousey, where after Rousey lost, she didn't want her face to be seen in public, and she just wanted to just storm out and get get away from get away from everyone. Uh, so for Colby, that's, th- this would show that that's not the case. Now, with that being said, is he in line for an immediate rematch with Kamaru? I think that's a fight that people are going to want to see eventually, but I don't think that's a fight that's going to be made immediately. Uh, with Walter Wade, they're probably still trying to figure everything out. I think this Connor fight is going to go a long way in determining it, If in that if Connor gets a win and then calls out Jorge Masvidal, then you're probably going to have Masvidal versus Connor, and then if they can actually make that Woodley versus um, Leon Edwards fight, then the winner probably gets a title fight after that. Um, or if Connor gets a win and doesn't call out Masvidal, or if Connor loses, uh, then the, pro- the thought process would probably be that, would probably be that Masvidal gets the next title fight. So it's not as though Colby needs to come back anytime soon right now, um, but it is good to see that he's probably not going to have as long of a break as some might have thought. Now, again, one of the downsides of the broken jaw isn't so much like actually having it heal as much as it is just the mental aspect of it, where once your jaw breaks once and knowing that that's a possibility, it, it can definitely make you a little bit gun-shy moving forward, um, both in the training and then also when, when you're out there in competition, uh, especially if you're having a rematch against the guy who broke your jaw in the first place. So from the mental side of it, it'll be interesting to see how Colby is able to, to deal with that. The fact that he knew that he had a broken jaw in the first place and in the third round and fought through it and fought hard through it uh, for two more rounds definitely shows where his mentality is at, at least in the moment. And I, I think with that being shown, there's good reason to believe that when he does come back, he'll, he'll be able to deal with some of the mental the mental concerns of having to come back with a broken jaw. Um, but again, it, it's good to see him out there, and it's good to see that he's having fun again. And Hopefully this means that his return will come a little bit sooner than some of us thought it would be after after all the damage he suffered in that fight against Usman. On to some news for the UFC. We have a few new fights that have been announced. So first fight to talk about is Jacare versus Uriah Hall. So Jacare moved up to 205 and had hoped that like Tiago Santos and like Anthony Smith, uh, he'd be able to be a lot more successful at 205 than he was at 185. Uh, Santos and Smith have been pretty successful there. Um, Smith did not fight Blahovich. Santos did and knocked him out. Um, but Blahovich also had fought against Luke Rockhold, who had a similar hope and knocked Rockhold out. And then Blahovich fought against Jacare and was able to stuff pretty much all of his takedown attempts, and we just had a really, really bad fight there. Uh, so after that, there, there was no reason to believe that Jacare was close to earning a title shot at 205. And so I guess for him, he felt like it, it'd be a good time to move back down to 185, maybe he'd have a better shot there. So he's going to be fighting up, fighting against Uriah Hall. This fight is scheduled for April 18th. So this is going to be on the undercard of the Tony Ferguson versus Khabib card. As far as how this matchup goes, it, it, it's interesting for Uriah Hall in that he recently got a win over Antonio Carlos Jr., uh, Shoeface, so another high-level jiu-jitsu guy. I believe Shoeface was a Black Belt World Champion as well. Uh, not as credentialed as Jack Ray, but winning a Black Belt World title is still a big deal. Shoeface, granted Gary Tonin is smaller than him. Uh, in a submission underground match, he had, a, he had a flying triangle on Gary Tonin, which kind of shows what level he's at. Um, but he was actually on Uriah, Uriah Hall's back for, for much of the first round, and Hall was able to survive, uh, get back up, and then dominate um, much of the rest of the fight and get the win there. So for him, he, he has another tough jiu-jitsu guy up ahead of him. Uh, for Jacare, the way that he fought against um, against Jan Blachowicz was pretty concerning in that he didn't 
look like he wanted to really get involved in any prolonged exchanges, and as a result, his setups for his takedowns just weren't very good. If he fights in a similar manner against Uriah Hall, he's going to have some trouble getting Hall to the mat, and if this fight stays on the feet and you have a tentative Jacare up against an aggressive Hall, it, it could go pretty poorly for him. Plus, Uriah Hall's looked really good since he's moved to Fortis MMA. So there's good reason to believe that Uriah Hall can actually get a win here, and getting a win over Chakra is going to be huge for him. He's a guy who a lot of people look at as someone who's pushed a little bit too soon. Unlike some of the others who took a lot of damage and I, I think put themselves in a position where they really can't come back, I think Uriah Hall physically still has the ability to be a top guy at middleweight. Uh, with him, it's always been more of a mental thing. It seems like a lot of that has been cleaned up um, since he's moved over to Fortis, that the coaching of Safe Sayud has been really helpful for him. And this is going to be a really big test for him if he actually does get the win here, which there's good reason to believe based off of how Jock Ray's fought recently that he will. Um, Uriah Hall is a guy who could make a run at middleweight a- after building off of this win in 2020. And it'll be really interesting to see if he does get the win here, what kind of matchup they give him next, and how far he's able to climb up the ladder. But th- there is reason to believe that Uriah Hall could be one of those guys where no one's really thinking about him right now, but by the end of 2020, he could be a guy who's working his way towards the title fight and getting a win here and a fight that I see as a winnable fight for him could definitely go a long way. Next fight to announce is a fight that's going to be really big for 125. So with Davis and Figueredo and Joseph Benavides being set to fight for the title right now, you've got a couple other guys who have really made a strong case as being guys who who deserve to be looked at as as top contenders. So we just had a really good match between Matt Schnell and um, Alexander Pantoja. Pantoja won that fight by knockout. So Pantoja sort of inserted himself into the title picture here. Uh, right before that, though, Brandon Moreno had a really good fight with Kai Kara France, where Moreno actually kept the fight on the feet for the most part against the striker and actually beat him on the feet. Uh, but he'll, get, he'll be getting a fight with Yusei Formiga uh, on March 14th. And you'd figure that if Moreno gets the win here, th- there's an argument to be made that he could be up for a title fight sometime soon, um, possibly by June or July, sometime during the summer even. Uh, if Formiga gets the win... Again, I guess you could make a similar case for him. Formiga's had some decent wins to fly away, especially recently. I believe he, his last one was against Sergio Pettis. Um, so I, either way, the winner of this fight could potentially be fighting for a title uh, in their next fight. Granted, depending on who wins between Pan, or between Figueredo and Benavides, that, that can definitely make a difference in terms of who gets the matchup. Uh, if Figueredo gets the win, I don't know that you'd want to put Figueredo versus Pantoja back right away. Granted, that wouldn't be the worst idea because their last fight was a great one, so you could have an exciting fight there. Uh, but if you're looking for a fresher matchup for Figueredo, then you could be looking at the the winner here, Moreno versus Formiga. Whereas if Benavides gets the win, maybe Pantoja makes a little bit more sense than the winner here. But even still, with a really good performance by the whoever wins this fight, they could find themselves in a title fight really soon, um, midway through the year even. Last fight that I, f- I feel like is worth announcing, there are a few others that, that came up, but the last one that was made official that I think is worth mentioning is Sean O'Malley, who... He's been building up a, a pretty big following, even outside of MMA. It seems like he's built up a pretty big following through the through the gaming world and the Fortnite world. Um, but he's had some issues with, with drug tests that have kept him out for a while. Uh, he, he's a guy who, with his striking, it, it's been improving over time. But one of the impressive things with him is that he, he seems like he's just very naturally talented at it in terms of being very quick, very very quick with his reflexes, very accurate with his punches. Uh, and definitely sees sees the fight in front of him very well and is very good at, um, at finding openings and and capitalizing on him. So for him, he's going to have a match with Jose Quinones. Quinones, I, I mean, he's a tough guy. He can definitely take a shot, but I don't know that I see him beating O'Malley anywhere here in this fight. So it seems like a good opportunity for O'Malley to, to pick up a win and kind of remind people who he is. And 
and sort of build himself up again. But O'Malley kind of has the feeling of someone, granted he's been pushed pretty hard, but he has the feeling of someone where if he can string some wins together and find his way into the rankings, that he could be a guy who the UFC could build around and try to build into a star. So for him, it seems though, at least now, he's finally going to be able to make his return. Granted, it's not going to be against a guy as high level as Marlon Vera. Uh, but even still, it's good to see him likely coming back. Uh, but that fight is scheduled for February 8th at UFC 247. And last thing to talk about is a couple of retirements. Um, I, I guess I kind of missed this with Fedor. Uh, so I guess I'll talk Fedor first. Fedor, after he beat Rampage, through an interpreter, it sounded as though he retired, where he said that much of his career happened in Japan, that this would be the end of his career in Japan. There was some talk afterwards in the post-fight press conferences that that was mistranslated and what he really meant that this was his last fight in Japan, but he still wanted to take a couple more fights after that. Uh, but then there were some other people, like Scott Coker, I think, understood it, that Fedor was just straight up retiring. So at this point, it's not 100% clear whether Fedor was retiring or not. I don't speak Russian, so I don't know exactly what he said. Um, different translators have given different um, explanations of what he said. So there's a chance that Fedor's retired. Now, granted, with that being said, even if Fedor did say, this is it, I'm done, he's, he's done that before, so... One of the things that happens is if, if a fighter announces their retirement at least once or twice and comes back more than that, it, it gets to the point where, at least for the purposes of these shows, like I don't feel like reporting it as if like they're retired because if you retired once before and you come back, if you retired twice and you come back, like if you say it again, can I really believe it? it it's one of those things where you, you kind of just have to let them, let them drift away and you, you, you sort of just let it be. So with Fedor, he, even if he, he did mean that this is his retirement, do I believe that he's never going to come back again? I, I mean, I don't know, especially after a win like this where he looked pretty good. One of the hard things for an athlete is that if you're losing, you don't want to retire until you have a win. But when you win, you're like, oh, hey, I can still beat these guys. I've still got it. Maybe I should I should keep going. And this is definitely one of those fights where Fedor is going to feel like he's still got it. Uh, so does he want to call it a career at this at this point? You, you know, maybe he could, but it's not like his record is anything that needs to be protected anymore. It's not like he had, like, that long giant winning streak uh, that's still active. I, I think he's had like four or five losses since he um, since he lost to Fabrizio Verdum. So it's not like he has a record that definitely that necessarily needs to be protected. It's more just what he feels like doing. And after a performance like that, I, I could see a reason why he could he could tell himself that he still got it. And if a nice enough offer is made, I, I could definitely see him coming back. Um, but as far as some retirements that, or at least first time ret- retirements, where I have reason to believe that they're true. We have Khalil Roundtree, who is going to be fighting against Sam Alvey, but he announced that he'll be retiring after that, which is a little bit surprising in that a couple fights ago against Eric Anders, Roundtree looked fantastic, and there was some talk of, wow, the time he spent in Thailand has been really helpful for him. Uh, looks like he's he's a new fighter, and he's a guy to look at as a potential prospect moving forward, as a guy who could potentially work his way into the rankings and even uh, work his way close to a title fight. Uh, but then in his last fight, um, I'm trying to think who he fought against, a uh, European guy. Um, whatever the case may be, though, he, he got knocked out pretty badly. And so I guess um, that, that definitely played a played a role in his mind where he feels like as he's worked his way up the rankings, he, he's had some, some tough draws and been finished pretty badly. He's lost pretty badly to um, Johnny Walker as well. So I guess for him, maybe he's like, you know what? I don't know that I believe I'm going to make it to the top of this division. Uh, I feel like I've done enough. You, you know, let's just take one more fight and then be done with it. Uh, I, he hasn't really gone into too much depth on why he's decided to retire now, but he did make that announcement. He does have the fight with Sam Alvey, which I'm sure will be a fun fight to watch. Um, but if he stays true to his word, then that'll be it for him, which is a little unfortunate in that he's a guy who at, at times looked like he had a, a lot of potential but never really quite realized it. 
other guy to who announced retirement, uh, also at 205, also a guy who had a lot of potential, um, a, a guy who you would hear stories about, especially when he was first starting in the UFC, as a guy who was giving people a lot of problems in the gym, and as a guy who, if you were just looking at what he what he does in the training room, would be a guy who potentially could be a future champion, if not a, a top contender, uh, but never really quite materialized, and that's Pat Cummins. He was an All-American wrestler at Penn State, got into the UFC at a point in his career where no one was really taking fights with him on the regional scene. Uh, Daniel Cormier needed an opponent after his opponent had just gotten injured, and so Cummins, off of the storyline of him making Cormier cry in Olympic Training Center, which seemed like it may have been true because Cormier wasn't exactly denying it, um, whatever the case may be, um, he was able to work his way into a title, or not into a title fight, but into a fight with Cormier, which, had he gotten the win there right off the bat, would have put him into the title picture immediately. But though his wrestling may have been very similar in skill to Cormier, and though at times, he, if Cormier was having a bad day, he might be able to out-wrestle Cormier, uh, given that it was an MMA fight, the, the striking was definitely important there, and Cormier dominated in the striking, was able to, to knock him out in that fight. And it was still kind of expected, though, that Cummins would, would be able to come back strong and still be able to work his way towards the top of the division, but it never really quite worked, that, worked out that way. I think with him, uh, sometimes when you have someone who's who's great in the gym and they're, they're not as great in competition, part of the reason why is just because of some competitive mindset, just because competition is a lot different than just pure training, especially when you're when every strike counts towards how the judges see things when you're, when you're fighting with much smaller gloves. Um, that can definitely create a difference that, that causes people to, to be less successful in the cage than they are in the gym. But another part of it, too, could be that typically when you're in the gym, you're not trying to knock each other out all the time, uh, and you also have bigger gloves. So when that's the case, sometimes that, that can favor a grappler, which Pat Cummings definitely is. Um, whereas when you're actually in the cage, um, the strikes are coming a lot harder, and the gloves are a lot smaller, and it seemed as though Cummings had gotten knocked out multiple times and was definitely having an issue transitioning to the striking with the four-ounce gloves in the cage against guys who were trying to put him away. And uh, unfortunately for him, though at times he was ranked, he never really... Never really got to the level that a lot of people expected him to get to. And so for him, now he decides to retire. He definitely had his opportunities. He had his run in the UFC. I'm sure he made a lot of a lot of good money, a lot more than he was making as a barista. So for him, at least at least he got to have, have the opportunity and see where he can go. Maybe didn't go quite as far as people expected out of him, but still had a, had a pretty, pretty, decent, pretty decent career. And for any fighter to, to hang him up after making it to the UFC, after fighting a former champion after getting ranked at certain points as well. Like that's not a terrible career, you know, granted some, some expected better, better out of him, but it's not as though he had a bad career either. Um, but that covers it for this week. So again, next week I'll be talking about the final results of both the Midlands and the Southern Scott I'm sure more MMA news will come out with the new year. And I don't believe there are any cards that are going to be previewed because the, the Conor McGregor card isn't coming out quite a, um, quite yet i think we still have a couple more weeks until that that's january 18th right so next week will be january 4th uh so yeah next week we won't cover the connor fight um but on the january 11th one which would be episode 37 and then i'll do the preview of the connor fight um but like i said it always seems like new new stories come up all the time so i'm sure there'll be plenty to talk about it um in the mma world obviously wrestling is gonna have a lot to, there's gonna be a lot to talk about with wrestling and um you know maybe there might be some more news with jiu-jitsu i don't think anything quite as big as gordon ryan announcing his retirement but you never know what'll come up